sing with us.
Father, we thank you that it is by your strength, by your rule, that you are sovereign, that we can have hope. That it's not in anything that we're doing, but instead it's in your great strength. Thank you, Father, that we have security. We have assurance in you and you alone. And it's not anything that we're having to work for. It is only by the free gift of your son, Jesus Christ, on the cross and our faith in him and what he has done for us and who he says he is and who he says you are that we can have hope. God, we pray that you would fill us with hope today. Remind us of the free gift of grace. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for forgiving us. Help us to love and to forgive each other. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Y'all can be seated. We're going to take our tithes and offerings at this time. Um, so if you're on the outside most seat on your row, there's a basket underneath that seat, and you can just pass it along. Um, and if you're on the inside most seat on your row, just hold on to it until an usher comes and grabs it from you. This week, we get the... Um, unique privilege um, of celebrating 500 years since the Reformation began, Um, 500 years since Martin Luther uh, posted his 95 theses um, on the door of the church. And and, and this, we want to make sure um, that we we take this opportunity as a a church to to have kind of a little history lesson for you. So um, I'm going to talk about a few things. I want to um, uh, stick with me, though, because this is this this is this means something. It is. It's not just um, something that happened in the past. This is relatable to what we're doing today and what we're talking about today. So I want to make sure that y'all know um, that the reformers saw their goal um, as reform, not revolution. Um, the the men that were involved with the Reformation uh, saw what they were doing as calling the church back. They weren't building some new thing. They were they were instead. Um, calling the church back to scripture and back to what actually was the message of the cross and what actually was the message that Jesus Christ brought um, and, and taught. Um, and so uh, this, was, this, is, this is for the entire church. This is not just a Protestant thing. Um, but the, um, we're, we're going to talk a lot about Luther right now because this is, we're kind of remembering what, what he did um, on this day. So I'm going to talk about a few things. The first thing was Martin Luther didn't think that he was going to be uh, a priest when he gr- uh, was growing up. He actually was going to be a lawyer. Um, he, he was training to be a lawyer, and then in 1505, um, as he was studying uh, to be a lawyer, he, uh, he was walking down the road, and a big storm hit, and actually a lightning bolt um, landed or, or struck next to him. Um, and it scared him. He, he actually, I mean, it was close enough where it knocked him over, and he, he was terrified inside of the storm. Um, his father was a miner, and so the, the patron saint of miners is St. Anne, the mother of Mary. Um, and so he cried out to St. Anne in that moment, like, hey, save me, and if you do, I'll become a monk. <laughs> um, kind of referencing back at, to vows and how we probably shouldn't do that. But we're, we're lucky that he did because... He did survive the storm, and then he did fulfill that promise, and he became a monk, and he started, um, he started studying the law of God with the same passion that he had stu- um, studied the law of man. 
So much so that, um, he, you know, as he entered the cloistered life and you're, you're kind of by yourself and you're praying a lot and you're reading and um, you're trying to examine your own life and, and, and examine scripture and uh, they would still, as monks, they would still do confession with, with a priest and um, as he's uh, doing his confessions, you know, con- confessions for people that were by themselves a lot and um, weren't out among other people, you would think that would be really quick. I mean, how much trouble can you get into all by yourself? Okay, it's a lot. But um, usually these confessions last like 20 to 30 minutes, um, and Luther's would, would last usually in the like two to three hour range. Because um, Luther was such a, a student of law, he knew, um, just like he knew the law of man, he lo- knew the law of God, and he knew that he was not measuring up to it. He knew that he was not able to. And so he would, I mean, he would go into these confessions really trying to, like, earn it because that's, that's the tradition that he had. He was, he was trying to get there, and he was trying to pay penance, and he was trying to, um, you know, achieve what men can achieve. Um, in, in 1510, he actually took a pilgrimage to Rome. And he started to see, um, he, had, he had started to see in Germany with the... Um, selling of indulgences and everything. Um, he had started to see some of the corruption, but in Rome, he really, like, it, the blinders were off. He could really see um, everything that was happening and how this, uh, you know, system that was going on was actually just lining the pockets of some men. They were, they were, they were getting rich um, off the um, money of poor men who just wanted to make it to heaven. Um, and he, inside of that, got really disillusioned um, with the faith and, and wasn't really sure what to do with it. But he knew the law, and he knew what he was trying to um, accomplish inside of it, and, and um, there was no other way. And he, he started to, to really read into scriptures, read scriptures, and try to figure out what was going on. Um, and then in uh, 1515, he read uh, Romans 1, 16 and 17. Um, but he read it in a different light. See, back then, the... the the academic language uh, was Latin, and so uh, they 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 knew the scriptures in Latin, and they they were they were reading the scriptures in Latin. Well, Luther started to read uh, Romans one sixteen and seventeen in Greek, and a weird thing happened. You got Romans one seventeen. Romans one seventeen says, "For in the righteousness of God is revealed." Uh, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed, sorry, through faith, for faith. As it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. The Latin word for righteousness that was being used um, was just uh, justificare. It has to do with being made righteous, like working towards righteousness, having, having a righteousness that is, that is um, earned. Um, and so, but the, the weird thing was in the Greek, the, the, the word that was used had more to do with a, a righteousness that is imparted, a righteousness that is um, uh, God's by, I mean, who he is. That, that, is what he is. that is what he is, and so he is imparting the righteousness to us. And he, like this, this was a, you know, another bolt of lightning to Luther. He could not... For the first time, he could understand that instead of earning righteousness, that by faith we are imparted righteousness. For it is in righteousness that God, uh, the God is, uh, it is in the righteousness of God um, is revealed through faith for faith, 
as it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith, not by earning it. And so uh, then in 1517, um, he started, um, or in 1517 is, is actually when he uh, posted his 95 theses on the, um, uh, the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. We actually have a picture of it. My, my uh, father-in-law got to go to Germany um, uh, this, this past year, and um, he took a lot of pictures for us. But that's, um, that's the door of the church in Wittenberg where the 95 theses were nailed. Those aren't the actual doors. They're metal now. They were wooden then. Um, but they were burned, so um, stuff happens. Um, but they, uh, uh, he, he posted the, the um, 95 Theses on there, and he, he, you know, inside of that was um, basically declaring that this, this doesn't make any sense. This is counter to the way that we are trying to achieve um, righteousness is counter to what the Bible is preaching. Um, and and you, can, you can look up those, those theses. I would encourage you to do that. that that's, it, all of this is informative. We just don't have time for uh, much more than that. But the, um, then in uh, April 25th, uh, sorry, April 18th of 1521, he was asked to, do, um, to present himself before uh, the, the diet, in, the imperial diet in, in Worms. Um, and uh, he was asked to recant. He was asked to... Um, to shoot, he was asked to um, to declare that what he was uh, what he had taught, what he was teaching, was not actually um, the word. And this is uh, his. <laughs> they did this at the beginning of the last one. I just I can't. This is too much. So we want to make sure you got a good picture here of what was going on. Wow, this is. Thanks, man. Yeah, that's not going on the website. <laughs> I know the guy who's in charge of that. Um, so inside, uh, the Imperial Diet of Words, he gave a long, uh, a long speech that would, I would also en encourage you to read. Um, but he gave it in German, and he gets to a certain part, part in the speech, and he's been talking um, to these uh, men and uh, encouraging them not to uh, ask this of him. He gets to a certain point, and they... they they're like, stop, hold on, um, you're, you're speaking in German, I, we're going to need you to address us in Latin. So he has to give the entire speech that he just gave in Latin again. So, <clears throat> uh, But then he ends with this. Since your most serene majesty and your high mightinesses require of me a simple, clear, and direct answer, I will give one, and it is this. I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or to the council because it is as clear as noonday that they have fallen into error and even into glaring inconsistencies within themselves. If then I am not convinced by proof from Holy Scripture or by cogent reasons, if I am not satisfied by the very text I have cited, and if my judgment is not in this way brought into subjection to God's word, I neither can nor will retract anything. For it cannot be either safe or honest for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. This was his response to, um, yeah, go ahead, go ahead stop doing that. <laughs> this was his response to um, his peers, men that he uh, knew. Um, the, this, this was the, the, um, the response to fellow Christians that he had. He was going to stand on God's word um, and not on the traditions of men, and he was not going to use God's word, word to make 
um, another man powerful. Instead, he was going to submit himself to Christ and to his word. Um, we learn a very important lesson uh, from, from Luther. When the gospel of Jesus Christ grips our lives, we are changed. When we see ourselves for who we are, how we do not live up to the um, perfection that he is, when we see God for who he is as perfect, as righteous, as holy, and when we see what he has done for us, the great gift that he has given to us, his grace, his righteousness, by faith, we will not be able to stay silent. We, we have sung a lot of songs this morning, a lot of old songs, actually. The first one was, um, Oh, Four Thousand Tongues to Sing. This was written by Charles Wesley in 1740. He actually wrote it as a, um, a uh, celebration of a life that is um, submitted to Jesus Christ as, as, as a celebration. He wanted people to sing this um, when they were first saved. Um, I'm going to read you the, the, uh, some of the um, poem, the longer poem um, that was then turned into, um, that he then turned into a song. But um, it says, Glory to God and praise and love be ever, ever given by saints below and saints above the church of earth and heaven. On this day, on this glad day, the glorious sun of righteousness arose. On my benighted soul he shone and filled it with repose. Sudden expired the legal strife. Twas then I ceased to grieve. My second real living life I then began to live. Then with my heart I first believed, believed with faith divine, power with the Holy Ghost received to call the Savior mine. I felt my Lord's anointing blood close to my soul applied. Me, me he loved. The Son of God, for me, for me he died. I found and owned his promise true, ascertained of my part. My pardon passed in heaven I know when written on my heart. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace. We then uh, sang uh, How Firm a Foundation. This was written um, in 1787 and was a... It's, I didn't know it, but this, this, is, this has been a, um, a big part of our church. We like to sing this um, when we do parental dedications to remind us of the, the sure foundation that um, we build our lives on, that we have in Jesus Christ. But it's actually been a favorite um, among people in our nation for a long time. It's been sung at a lot of uh, president's funerals and stuff like that. Um, but my favorite is on Christmas Eve, 1898, in the Spanish-American War, um, there were American units involved in this war, and they joined to sing this hymn together. And these uh, units were from both the North and the South. Um, this is a unifying thing, this faith that we have. We can trust in it. We can trust in him, um, and we can, we can uh, see that. Um, then we sang, Be Thou My Vision, um, which... I think we've talked about being a, a big part of our church, but it's actually a sixth century um, hymn, sixth, sixth century. Um, the text is part of a, an Irish monastic tradition, um, and for centuries, um, uh, it, it was a part of an Irish monastic um, tradition, and uh, it was 
it was then, after centuries, um, put to music, and we've been singing it ever since. Um, we stand on the shoulders of, of men, who, men and women who um, submitted their lives to Christ, that did not trust in their own understanding, but in all their ways acknowledged him, and he made their path straight. We've been reading a lot um, in Judges about uh, people that um, were doing what was right in their own eyes. Um, we saw that uh, then in those stories. We see it uh, in the you know traditions um, of the past, and the, the um, you know what what Luther was was fighting against was was men trying to achieve um, righteousness. They were trying to follow God. They were trying to do the right thing. Um, they were trusting, though, in their own understanding. They were not actually submitting their lives to, um, to his uh, word and his way. I mean, we see it today. There are a lot of people um, today that are trying to do this thing called life in their own understanding. They're trying to figure out the best way to, to make uh, the world work to... to make their, their own lives seem important or, or worth something. They're, they're trying to figure out how to be right, to be just, to be um, holy in one way or another. Um, but instead of submitting uh, to the word of God, instead of submitting to what he has shown us to be true, we try to do it in our own strength. We try to do it in our own wisdom. And I'm saying we. You can examine your Facebook feed or your um, Instagram or whatever it is that you're um, doing. You can examine the, the decisions that you're making day in and day out, and you can see how often you are trying to figure this out in your own strength. We are trying to work this out with what seems best to us in our own eyes. I would encourage you today that if you... Um, if you submit your life to Christ, if you see him as your Lord and master, then no matter what war will come, because there will be a war that comes, people aren't going to like that. No matter what storm you're in, if it was up to us, that storm would overcome us. Our fighting would be losing. But the truth is that we have the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. We're going to sing A Mighty Fortress is Our God together. Um, this is based on Psalm 46. And again, we don't have time to read it right now, but I would encourage you to go read it. Um, it's a song of victory. that uh, um, It is um, speaking of the victory that happened, that God achieved um, for his people without their help. And we can know um, him as a fortress and we can know him as our stronghold and we can know the victory that he has and he alone has if we submit to Jesus Christ and to his word. Let's sing together. Would you stand?
fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amidst the flood of mortal hills prevailing. For still our ancient
think it's appropriate to uh, take a moment in prayer. Um, I won't start praying immediately. I think probably it's a good, probably we all need a minute with God. So um, uh, let's pray. Father, I wouldn't even start, uh, know where to start about um, being thankful this morning. Am I thankful that people um, wrote hymns 1,600 years ago that still inspire us? And I thank you that um, um, even before that, the saints and the Son of God were living a life um, that we could learn from and that we could draw from and that your son did what no one else could ever have possibly done in purchasing our justification for us and imparting his righteousness despite us. And um, Father, I'm, I'm grateful for um, the courage of men like Luther, though flawed people, um, who are willing to stand by your scripture when it costs them everything. <clears throat> Father, I thank you for uh, John's leadership this morning and, and this team's, and I thank you for the, the powerful words of those hymns and the way they teach the truth about who you are and who we are. And I pray that we will be ever um, challenged and motivated by your truth, I'm broken by it and humbled by it, and at the same time in, in, filled with enthusiasm because of it. So, Lord, we thank you. We praise you for all of it. And I'm just barely even scratching the surface. Thank you, Father, in your son's name. Amen. Um, <clears throat> so, um, wow, over the years, one of the reasons, if, if you've been coming for a long time, you've noticed that it is a very, very rare Sunday that we don't sing a hymn together, um, uh, even though we do a rather upbeat style of, of worship um, for the most part, and we include all the instruments and everything Part of why we do them, um, I think a lot of the, the praise choruses that have been developed over the, the last few decades are wonderful for learning Scripture. Um, how many of you have ever, you've ever been reading through Scripture and you read through the Psalms or you're reading through Deuteronomy and you run across a passage you realize you know the tune that goes with that Psalm or that, that passage or whatever. Like, hey, I know that one. Um, that you've memorized the Scripture and didn't even know it. I think those praise choruses are very powerful for teaching us Scripture. Um, as a theologian, which is one of my great passions, um, the, the, the great power of the hymns is to teach theology, I think. There's, I mean, you, you, could take, uh, you could teach for months on the song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and the theological stance and the theological, just, just the precision uh, of Luther's writings there. Uh, they, they, just, they didn't waste words, and, and that's a translation. I can't imagine what it would be like to study them in the language he wrote them in. And so... Um, Wow. So I, I, uh, I hope that you are challenged by that week after week. And, um, uh, and I'm very thankful to John. So John has been doing, since we knew we wanted to emphasize this Sunday, and literally my version of guidance is like, um, I, I don't know, what were some of Luther's favorite hymns? Maybe we should do those. There you go. That's, that's the amount of guidance I gave John for this morning. So he started researching and studying and, and, and listening to historians and, and pastors and all kinds of stuff and seeing what other people have done and um, and learning a ton. I mean, doing a lot of work with it. I think Luther himself would have been very pleased um, that someone in this era researching his story 500 years later would have constantly 
been returned again and again to the gospel. Um, again and again. That's a, um, I got to see that through this as John would share something he had learned as John was returned again and again to the gospel um, as he studied for today. So um, I hope you have noticed that Judges return, has returned us again and again to the gospel. The story of Samson will return us again and again to the gospel. Um, a little bit backwards, honestly. The story of Samson gets us there uh, kind of a tough direction. Um, Samson is kind of famous for being kind of the action figure of the Bible. Um, and so this is, there's Samson, what you, what you picture of Samson, right? Or maybe you picture the younger version of Samson. Apparently this was like a cartoon series on one of the Christian networks. I think it's funny that his partner was a lion. He does, he does kill a lion at one point. I'm not sure I understand why the lion would have been his buddy in the, uh, his little sidekick. Um, I did not ever see an episode of that, thankfully. The, um, there you go. So, so he's kind of the action figure of the Bible in so many ways, but truly, um, Samson is also one of the cautionary tales of the Bible. Um, it's when we study, when we're studying someone like Samson, um, we're, we're going to be have probably have some things revealed to us about ourselves. Um, in fact, I'd go so far as to say that if studying Samson does not reveal to you anything about yourself, you may be even more like Samson than you know. Um, that's that's one, of the, one of the challenges um, of someone like Samson. For years, um, I taught, and then after I did, Paul taught a, a, a Bible study to a group of young men, and that, that eventually became The Gauntlet, um, which is a Bible study that I wrote that is for, for parents, for, for men to, to mentor other men through The Gauntlet. And it came from the idea of, of, of somebody throwing the gauntlet down in front of a tent um, in a tournament, and that that was a challenge. You threw your gauntlet down, and you said, are you, are you willing to face me? And the gauntlet uh, that I've written so far, I think it's 12, it may be 14 men from the Bible that are they're, they're throwing the challenge down. But one of them is, is Samson, because what Samson does is he, he throws down the gauntlet, but I think unintentionally. You, you, most of these men that we study, we study them in, from Scripture, and we go, how can I be more like this person? Now, Judges has not always been that, right? Judges has been a lot of how do I avoid being like these people. Um, Samson is the ultimate expression of that. In fact, um, I, I'm a big fan of the, uh, um, the demotivational calendars, the demotivational posters by despair.com. No, no they're, not, they're not paying me for that. But um, that, that every year, I think I got one for, for Ellie this year to put up. Um, they, they do posters that are the opposite. They're demotivational. So this one is called Mistakes. Um, it could be that the purpose of your life is to only serve as a warning to others. Um, this, is, this is its main purpose. There's a reef there. Don't, don't take your boat there. And so um, that's one of the purposes of guys like Samson is that as you read through them, you can say, okay, when I see myself on the same path as Samson, I need to get off of that path. Um, I need to get off of that path as quickly as possible. And so that's one of the purposes of Samson as we're, as we're moving forward. Um, how do we learn from the mistakes of someone? Now, here, here's key. None of us is worthy. Uh, none of us is really worthy of being followed. Um, only God is. Luther, for example, is a deeply flawed person. Um, if you study him, you will be disappointed by him. But you, you will be moved more and more by the gospel of the God who saved him. I've said before that I think I was raised on this fear-based version of Christianity in a lot of ways. That, that you know, my life was going to be put on a screen at Judgment Day. And I was going to be so embarrassed when all of humanity, and most, most importantly, my grandmother, was going to be sitting there as my sins were played on the screen uh, and the, in front of her. I mean, think how humiliating that's going to be, right? When they, they put out, the, it was always 8 millimeter was the imagery there. I guess it'll be digital now. But they would, they're going to put this up on the screen and somebody's going to crank through 
all the sins of your life, and all of mankind is going to get to see this. And I was teaching about my feelings about that as a youth minister one time, and as I was teaching it, I was teaching from Revelation 1, and as I was teaching it, I said, um, here's what I'm imagining someday is that, you know, here I am, I'm sitting on a stool on stage, and there's an empty stool there. And Jesus Christ in all of his glory is going to come walking out on stage with the, the, the hair, you know, the, the hair white as snow and like lightning, his clothes are like lightning and, and there's fire in his eyes and a sword in his mouth. Just this is the perfect expression of what it means that Jesus Christ was divine, was fully God. He's going to stroll out on stage and they're going to start playing my sins and Jesus and I are going to watch my sins together as we go through this and <clears throat> all the crowd's going to be embarrassed by my sins and then in the end it'll be wonderful because Jesus will have saved me from these sins. And as I'm teaching that, I realize my error and the error that I've been taught with the whole time. The error is this. What possible interest will me or my sins have to anyone in all of creation if Jesus Christ in all of his glory is standing on the stage? And what possible interest would any of those things have? Jesus Christ just walked out in all of his glory. No one is going to give a rip what is shown on the screen. At most, when they, do something, when they show something good on the screen, people would go like, wow, Jesus did that through him? And when they show something bad on the screen, they'll go, wow, Jesus saved him from that? How could it possibly? I'm not going to be the, the, the v, v, VIP of my judgment. I'm going to be in an insignificant role in that. So if you've got that fear-based picture, yes, we should be horrified by our sin and the shame that it would bring on the name of Jesus. Absolutely, of course we would. But if we think that that shame is somehow going to motivate us to not sin. You're wrong. The Apostle Paul has a few words to say about that. That's not, what, that's not what motivates us. What could motivate us to walk away from this is if we really understood who God was and we really understood what it's going to be like, that we, don't, we get to be free of this stuff. So as we're talking at Samson and recognize, we are deeply flawed. I'm a deeply flawed person. You are a deeply flawed person. All of us are. We're never going to be impressive. Only God is. So as we study Samson, a deeply flawed person, I will say one thing in his defense. He does seem to be clueless. And let me just say, the only worse expression of immaturity that I think I've come across in my life than someone who is clueless about the level of childishness that they bring to the table, who is clueless about the level of immaturity and sin that they bring to the table, are those handful of people who embrace that, that they know that about themselves. You've, you've worked with them. You've been introduced to them. You've um, connected with them. They're the ones who start by telling you about their sin, and then they keep talking. I, I know this is true about me, but now I'm going to show you that it's true about me. So you know that, and instead of closing your mouth and falling on your face before God because of your sin, you're not going to impart that sin to us as though it was wisdom. The one thing I can say for Samson is, I think he was completely clueless. I don't think he had any idea how flawed a person he was. Um, the only thing that would be worth, that worse than ignorance, I guess, would be apathy. So Judges 13 is where we're going to be. And after studying and, and getting ready for this, I think we're probably going to kick Gideon all the way to the new year. Um, I don't want to rush through Samson. And so we've only got a few more weeks before um, the nativity season starts. And so I think my, guessing, my guess is we'll get to start the new year with Gideon. So I'm kind of, I'm kind of those of you who are like fans of Gideon, I hope you're, you're seeing this as like, I'm just kind of dangling him out there as some kind of bait to keep you, keep you following me. So um, we start with the guy, well, interesting, we start the story of Samson without Samson. We start with a guy named Manoah. And Manoah means rest. 
You may notice Manoah is the same name, same word as Noah, right? Noah means rest in Hebrew. I mean, his wife was barren. Now, I want to comment on this terminology. I hate that term. Um, it's a totally unnecessary term. It's an English word, not the Hebrew word, obviously. The Hebrew word just means unable to produce offspring. Barren has this implication, lifeless, dead, desert. And, and that's not implied by the Hebrew word. That's only implied by the English word. I'm so glad that we've grown from that idea. Um, this, the implications of the English word, I'm glad we've grown from that. The, the meaning, akar, A-Q-U-A-R, just, it's connected to the word descendants, unable to produce descendants. Yes, Hebrew women interpreted infertility as a curse sometimes. Um, and, but we know there's more than one picture to the way God treasures many of the women who don't have children in the Bible. We see him constantly treasuring women who don't have children. Having a child was something of an ultimate thing for Hebrew women, it does seem, because of the nature of their culture. But the woman or man who cannot conceive, carry, or deliver their own child is not barren. That's a false idea. They're not desert land that can't produce. No, no, that's just, that's ridiculous. And that's a, an outdated mode, and I'm glad we've gotten away from that. In a world in which thousands and thousands of unchosen little lambs need to be chosen and shepherded. How could we ever think of someone who wasn't able to have biological children as barren? Um, how can a family whose flock is filled with little unloved lambs be considered in any way barren? That's just a mistake. There's life and life abundant in the hearts of wives and aunts and friends and ministers who love little lambs who need to be loved. Sorry, this, this, I'm going to turn into Pike here for a second. So, I reject the term barren. Any woman can have babies. Any woman can be a lush field with canopies of mustard stalks where any number of little birds can find a home. Any woman... We talk about this every Mother's Day. Any woman who exemplifies the maternal traits of God to any child is a mother. That's what it means to be a mother. So here we are on word three or four in this verse, and I'm already stuck and um, distracted. But I think that's important. I want you guys to hold on to that concept. This is not... Let's, I wish we, had, we need a new word for the new updated translations from nowadays. It just says something simple like, she couldn't have her own babies. Anyway, like in the story of Rebecca and Hannah and Sarah and Elizabeth and others, God decides to give her a child. The angel of the Lord is wandering around. Now, you've noticed, the angel of the Lord has been wandering around through the whole book of Judges. I've never noticed that before until now, when I've been teaching through it. The angel of the Lord really just seems to be kind of, just he's, he's in Gilead, and, and then he's someplace else, and he just kind of wanders around where he's needed. He's just kind of a fascinating little character. I've, I've never noticed the nature of the angel of the Lord in the book of Judges. He just kind of shows up periodically, declares something, does something. I think it's cool. It shows that even in the, in the book of Judges, God has not left his people. God has not abandoned his people. The angel of the Lord is still there. He's just, he's just waiting for the right moment to step in, and he's going to engage here, he's going to engage here, and he does it over and over again. I'm in verse 5. For behold, you will conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hands of the Philistines. So the Philistines have been ruling over Israel now for 
a long period of time. It's hard to know exactly because it says for 40 years, but that's probably not 40 years until Samson shows up. That's probably a few years and then Samson is born and then he grows up under their rule. And so it's hard to really know the timetable here, but the Philistines are in charge. The Philistines are the, if you remember, they were the people who were in Egypt. They got kicked out of Egypt and transplanted to Israel. They're a, a, a warlike nation. I said they're the Klingons of the Bible. They are, they're just, all they, all they think about is fighting and killing and destroying and stealing and taking. And then that's their whole life. And the Egyptians got so sick of it, they moved them, they transplanted them forcibly to the coast of Israel. Now, um, so Samson is going to, that's interesting, the terminology, begin to set the people free. He's not going to be the finishing product of setting the people free. By the way, that's not going to happen from the Philistines for a long time. Eventually, the Philistines are eradicated. Um, they no longer exist. In today's world, there are no Philistines. Yes, um, the emperor Tiberius, um, at some point, or Hadrian, excuse me, the emperor Hadrian, when he was naming the area of Judea, he called it Palestine. Intent- he hated the Jews. So he called it Palestine because that was kind of a Latin version of Philistine, and he wanted to name that region after the people the Israelis hated the most. I mean, even though they were a dead culture. There is no such place as Palestine culturally. Um, there are no such thing as... The, the Palestinian is a, is a culture of, of people, Arab people, or even um, uh, Persian people who live in that region. But there's, not, there's no such thing as a race called Palestinian. They're Jordanian, or they're, they're either Arab or they're, or they're Persian. But that was the, the Romans gave it that name. So don't be confused by that. There's no such thing as Philistines anymore. They're all dead. Um, their, their people were wiped out. But he's going to begin to, Samson's going to begin to start, he's going to start that process. Um, I will comment real quickly as an apologist, someone who likes to defend Scripture as truth, um, that we don't know the name of Manoah's wife. We don't know the name of Samson's mother. Why? I think it's because the author of Judges didn't know it. So if we were making stuff up, of course the writer of Judges would invent a name. And it'd probably be a cool one. And it would have some really cool Hebrew meaning. But I don't think he knows it, so he doesn't make one up. Yet another evidence, a little tiny evidence of the trustworthiness of these passages. They weren't making this up. If they were making it up, this would be a named person. And a famous one, by the way. She's important. <clears throat> now, so what is a Nazarite? Um, in Numbers chapter 6, we see the description of Nazarite. So God is going to explain to Moses an opportunity. The people could have an opportunity to set themselves apart for, apart for a period of time in this heading, Nazarite. So and we're starting in, in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. And he says, One, wine and strong drink. Um, he shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes fresh or dried. There's not there's anything wrong with these things. There's not anything wrong with grapes or vinegar or any of that kind of stuff. This is purely kind of an arbitrary setting aside. I'm going to set myself aside from this for a period of time. It's a good way to keep myself sober and thoughtful and intentional and missing the things I enjoy, the flavored things of life. I'm only drinking water. Therefore, that keeps me focused. If any of you have done any lengthy fasts, um, it's a great way. Every time you feel hungry, it reminds you, I need to focus on God. I need to focus on God. I need to focus on God. Every time you see food advertised on the television, which, by the way, when you're fasting, turns out, is all the time. 
if you've ever fasted for any period of time, you'll begin to notice that everyone on TV is eating all the time. You don't ever notice it normally, but man, when you're fasting, it is nonstop. So, um, not that I'm complaining. It's, it's, a, it's just it's this constant thing. So this would remind them, every time they have to drink water rather than wine, I'm on this vow. I'm focusing my attention for th- something special. Um, <clears throat> all the days of his vows of separation, no razor shall touch his head until the time is completed, which he separates himself to the Lord shall be holy. He will let the locks of his hair grow long. All the days he separates himself, he shall not go near a dead body. Not even for his father or his mother or brother or sister, if they die, shall he make himself unclean because the separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. Three rules. No drinking or heavy uh, drinks. None of that. No touching dead things and no cutting your hair. Not, Not really that strenuous. I mean, be perfectly honest, it, it's, don't cut your hair. I mean, I get to be a pain, I guess, after a while, eventually, kind of, but not touching dead things. I don't, I don't know that we're all that into that anyway most of the time. That was actually kind of a standard rule for the people of Israel, not to touch dead things. So anyway, so Manoah wants to verify the story. So he prays that God would send the man again, the angel of the Lord, which God does because God is that type of a patient God. The angel reappears. And when he leaves, he leaves in the flames of a burnt offering, which is a crazy little story. Um, But it proves to Manoah that this is not just some dude. When when, When someone climbs into the middle of a fire on a rock and then ascends to heaven in the flames of the stuff, he's not a normal person. Even Manoah is able to pick up on this. Manoah is now afraid. Now, you don't want to read too much into this stuff. But you can kind of start picking up on the relationship between Manoah and his wife a little bit. Manoah seems to be kind of one of those emotional, panicky kind of guys. He's really reactive and seems a little... Whereas his wife seems like the more calm, rational one. So sure enough, he he, he gets all panicky. He's sure they're going to die. His wife says, I mean, Manoah, if if God wanted us dead, we'd be dead already. I mean, it's, it's not like he's just now going to kill us. If he wanted us dead, he would have killed us long before now. Apparently that logic works. Um, and then they're okay. Now, then, then Samson is born. It tells us, and the spirit of the Lord began to stir in him in a city in Dan between Zorah and Eshtual. <clears throat> and the word here, stir, means to move, to agitate. Um, a sudden impulsive mood, like a jerky movement is what's being described here. Like it, it's a sudden impulse. This is going to happen to Samson many times in his life. Um, and we're going to see maybe all of them, but um, certainly some of them. The, um, it may be, so we picture Samson, remember the action figure is a big muscle-bound guy. It may be that Samson was not at all muscle-bound. His strength did not come from him working out all the time. In fact, he kind of, come across, kind of comes across as a little bit of a lazy oaf. Um, it's a very good possibility. He wasn't a big muscle-bound guy. That He was just a normal dude who God came onto at times, and he then performed supernatural acts of strength. Um, Maybe just a strawny guy with dreadlocks. Um, So the idea of picturing him is hugely strong. So we get this first story, Judges 14. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. I feel like we're missing something here. We literally go from Samson is, is born, and then the next thing you know, Samson is enough of an adult to be looking for a wife. I'd love to know what happened during the intervening years. Um, periodically, people ask about the fact that we have grade school children um, in the service. 
And, and certainly not all grade school children can be in the service. There are special need kids and ADHD kids and stuff like that, um, that that may not be able to be in the service. But we, well, this, is, this is not an accident. This isn't like some like, oh, I don't know, we didn't think about that. Here's what we want. And this is, it seems like Samson missed from his parents this modeling. He doesn't seem to get their devotion to God. Like there's a disconnect. I don't know how that happened. It can happen in any family. Um, but in this situation, I feel like they just would take a moment and say, like, this is part of why we have grade school kids in here. Um, now, because we want them to see you, mom and dad, grandma, grandpa, aunts and uncles, we want them to see you worshiping. We want them to see that, that that's part of who you are. That we want, to see, we want them to see you taking notes. Um, we want them to see you engaged in the sermon and learning and commenting. So one, if you're not taking notes, if you're not focused and not learning, that should be a motivator for you, hopefully, that other kids, your children and other people's children could see this. We want them to see you giving. We want them to see one another, us doing this as a community. We want, to, we want our kids to experience this with us um, as they're old enough to do it. So part of why we have the little kids book back there, or the little kids page back there, so they can be engaged in a way that's appropriate for kids. But that's that's part of what we're doing here is we want our children to be prepared to grow up in this. Is it, is it sometimes a little long for them or a little tedious or maybe a little boring? It might be. I get that. It, it is for a lot of you too. That's okay. To be able to engage and to stay engaged and for them to see it, I will tell you, I highly recommend encouraging. So you take notes. Um, you engage. Let them see you engaging with each other as a couple, by the way. This is not a chastisement or anything. You may choose to do this totally differently, and given the nature of your children, it may be important to do it differently. But I love when, when couples sit together. For the kids to see that, to see them to see mom and dad kind of side by side, arms around each other engaged. I know that that's, not everybody can do that with every kid, but that kind of stuff, we want them to see that happening. We want them to see other families and other people and to begin to experience that. Anyway, I think somehow we missed something along the way with Samson. I don't know where Samson gets off track. He has no business being in Timnah. He has no business being there. This is a Philistine city. These are the ones who enslave them. He's missing something. Something's wrong here. I will tell you, and I'm going to make sure and emphasize this in the second service when my children are here. <clears throat> One of the Benson's commentary from 1857 commentary. I love this quote. He's going to go down there, and he's going to tell them, I found a woman, get her for me. And they're going to try to talk him out of it because they know that's wrong. He's not supposed to be marrying some Philistine woman, and he's, he's just enough childish. But here's what struck me. Here's a, here's a quote from that. Herein he is an example to all children, conformable to the fifth commandment. That's honor thy father and mother, by the way, for those who don't know that. Children ought not to marry nor to move toward it without the advice and consent of their parents. Amen? Oh, yeah. When my kids are here, make a big deal about that. Okay? Um, that, that, that they do, as Bishop Paul speaks, unchild themselves. <laughs> Parents have property in their children as parts of themselves. Uh, not, not common thinking today, right? But listen, there's a sense in which um, I, I really am just doing that for my kids. So we can skip this first service. Really, it's not that. No, in marriage, <laughs> this property is transferred. It is therefore not only unkind and ungrateful, but palpably unjust to alienate this property without their concurrence. Now, I, I disagree with a lot of what this guy says, but the point he's making is, this is a good example of when Samson should have listened to his parents. 
He could have saved everyone a whole lot of trouble, himself especially, if he, in fact, mostly him, if he had stayed out, if he had just listened to his parents. But, of course, he's Samson, and he's clueless, so he doesn't. This is a pattern. Samson, three different times, significant times, probably thousands of times, but three different significant times in his life, his attention is caught by a woman, and that's pretty much all it takes to draw this boy off the path. It happens over and over again. It makes sense. In Judges 17, 6, he is, he's the perfect example of the judge's era. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Eyes are a powerful picture here. I'm going to wrap up with this picture, this concept. Look at Proverbs 21.2. This is a great wisdom. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes. But God weighs the heart. We have to learn to weigh our hearts. We have to learn to, to do this as well, to check our own motivation. Why are we doing what we're doing? There's a, a great quote that you find if you study this much. It's all over the place. It's by a person named Bill Perkins, but there's like five or six famous Bill Perkins, so I can't figure out which one it is. It doesn't matter. This phrase is good. If you think you won't fall into sexual sin, then you're godlier than David, stronger than Samson, and wiser than Solomon. Don't ever think that we're above any of this. We don't want to study, even though we study Samson as a warning, we don't want to study Samson as somehow beneath us. Everything that Samson does, we can do and we have done. Samson says, go get her. She is right in my eyes. What a great phrase, right in my eyes. You may never do the right thing if you're saying that phrase. My favorite um, musician, author, Rich Mullins, says this phrase. This is, a, this is a statement from his song, The Maker of Noses. They said, boy, you just follow your heart. But my heart just led me into my chest. They said, follow your nose, but the direction changed every time I went and turned my head. They said, boy, you just follow your dreams. My dreams were only misty notions. But the father of hearts and the maker of noses and the giver of dreams, he's the one I have chosen and I will follow him. Boy, there's great wisdom here. Don't follow your eyes or your heart or your dreams or your own wisdom. They're not trustworthy most of the time. What about God's eyes? Beings the one, being the ones that we look through. Doing our best to be wise. Wise is to see as God sees. Um, we're going to start next time. Now, God's going to use this. And God is in the process of doing something here that he wants to accomplish. God's going to do this. But I, I would say this is, a, this is a great place to stop and give us the chance to pause before we dive into the next phase of Samson's life, but this, this next week, is this. When, what, what parts of our lives are we, are we following our own heart? Are we trusting in what we see? Something that's right in our eyes. Versus, are we submitting our view to his? Are we submitting our heart to his? Our way to his? We're not going to see Samson get this. All the way through his death. Samson's not going to see as God sees. But we have the opportunity to do so. So this week, as you're thinking through and getting prepared for us to dive even further into Samson, to be thinking about where am I trusting my way, or even worse, the world's way, versus trusting in God's way? All right, let's pray. Father, again, I thank you for the example of someone like Samson, even if it's a bad one. I thank you that you don't just prop up false heroes for us to worship or idolize, but instead, Lord, a Bible full of broken, frail, flawed, sinful men and women just like us. God, we are dysfunctional in the way we live out our lives, and that's, 
The, the good news about that, Lord, is your son, when he, came, when he came, he said he did not come to save well people, but sick people. <clears throat> God, we proclaim, therefore, that we are sick people and we need a Savior. God, I thank you for that the life of Luther points us back to not Luther, but to Jesus Christ and his good news. I thank you that the life of Samson points us not to really to Samson, but to the work that you are accomplishing. And so, Lord, I pray you would guide us today with this common theme, that we would look to our own hearts and be reformed, that we would be called back, back to the truth of who you are and the truth of your son's work on the cross. I pray that we will let ourselves be drawn back to you in any area of our lives where we've begun to trust in our own understanding. Um, teach us instead to see as you see. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.